Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Most people who know his name know Bob Rennie as a real estate success story, and perhaps they know he's a prolific and well-respected art collector too. Those that know him more deeply also know how charismatic, kind, quick-witted, supportive, and generous he truly is. He grew up in East Vancouver, the son of lower-middle-class parents. His mother spent many years raising him and his sister, but at the age of 40, finally entered the workforce as a waitress. A truck driver for Carling Brewery, his father also ran the press box for the Vancouver Canucks and BC Lions. At 19, Bob picked his own path and started his career as a realtor and began steadily building the backbone of his business empire from the simple values imparted on him by his father. His biggest passion, however, is collecting art, something that sparked on a trip to San Francisco in 1974 when he was 18 years old. During a gallery visit, he saw a Norman Rockwell limited edition print on top of the world. He bought it for $375 and marked the start of the renowned and extensive Rennie collection, one of the largest contemporary private art collections in North America. Works in the collection are regularly shown at Rennie Museum in Vancouver's Chinatown and are also loaned to various museums across the world. Bob also currently serves on the boards for the Tate Americas Foundation and the Art Institute of Chicago. In this conversation, we discuss what he learned from his parents growing up, the importance of creating trustworthy relationships in work, art, and life, why he collects art in the threads of diversity, inclusion, and social injustice, the story of how he acquired Carrie James Marshall's Garden Party over the course of nine years and his longstanding friendship with the artist, how the art world has evolved from when he began collecting to now, advice he'd give those wanting to build their own collections, what he learned about himself over the last two years during the pandemic, why it's essential to show people your vulnerability, what he would tell his three children right now, and much more. Please enjoy this insightful and dynamic conversation with the truly wise and wonderful Bob Rennie. Bob Rennie, welcome to The Craft. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I always love to connect the dots on how I met my guest. And I met you 11 years ago, which is a long time. Is it that long ago? It's it's that long ago. And if you remember, I was at Vancouver is Awesome, and I'd come to interview you. And I was doing an interview on Rennie Museum. And it was Richard Jackson back then. And you spent an hour with me. Was Richard with us? No, I wish. (laughs) I wish. But um, we went through the show. And you explained it, and you told me about yourself. And in the end, you always give great hugs. You asked, can I give you a hug? I hugged too much during COVID, I'm told. (laughs) Do do you? Oh, you can't stop hugging. That side COVID hug. (laughs) Um, But yes, I remember that you'd said something to me that I I, will never forget. But um, you hugged me, and you pulled away, and you looked me in the eyes, and you said, may I really like your spirit? And I came away and thought, I need to work for this man one day. And I wasn't even in real estate. I had never met you before. 
And then that's eventually what happened. But you have a nice energy. It's why people sit here across <laughs> from you is because you build a quick trust. Mm, yeah. So anyways, I ended up working for Rennie for six years and now doing something new. So I, I appreciate I, you being here. And I'm in therapy over abandoned conditions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's take a way back to your childhood. Uh, tell me about what it was like growing up. You grew up in East Vancouver, Nanaimo yeah. and Fifth. Yeah, I, I grew up with Fifth and Nanaimo and East Van, and um, we were lower middle class, borderline poor. But I didn't know that until I started to experience my wealthy relatives, my mother's brothers and sisters and seeing that other side of of life mm-hmm. but it was a uh, a unique household my mother went to work when she was 40 years old which was quite progressive to what became a waitress and got her driver's license mm-hmm. so we always sort of were in awe of our mom moving along and yeah. And, and being progressive. My father was a beer, as everybody knows, my father was a beer truck driver and he ran the press box for the Vancouver Canucks through the WHL and all through the NHL while the Griffiths owned the team and he also did the same for the BC Lions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember you saying that um, I feel like he had imparted some wisdom on you that you... You, you know, d- Dad was loved by by everybody you know died at 63 years old worked for 49 years for Carling Breweries a very typical story collected one pension check but he in running the press box and being an average guy and they would kidnap him take him to training camp and he knew all the sports figures and all the media mm-hmm. figures regionally in in Vancouver but he always taught me that everybody is equal and i remember him telling me that he threw Michael J. Fox out of the press box or asked him to leave, whatever exaggeration is in the story, because he swore in front of women. Hmm. And Dad just had very clean boundaries. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. Everybody is treated equal. And those things were instilled into me as I came into real estate at 19 that it didn't matter what home, what tenancy, what six-foot basement suite drenched in water I went to, I always took off my shoes because that's somebody's home. Mm-hmm. And just those simple those simple values were actually the backbone for my business career rather than the mega-billionaires I deal with. They, there's lots of, I've learned from everybody, but his simple values actually gave me a really nice start into mm-hmm. this business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I remember that story about you taking your shoes off, no matter what the household looked like. Yeah, and then, and then I, you know, Miyako was Japanese, and so of course you take your shoes off. Right. Yeah. So yeah. who is who is my, my wife? We married at 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. What was your mother like? A little bit eccentric. Uh, I wore a new wig every day, etc. I mean, it's it's a common story. My mother left my father seventeen times, and sometimes with all the furniture. And it was just a very uh, crazy life. But I think the gift that they gave me was able to manage complex situations. Mm. 
mm-hmm. that maybe from the other side of the tracks that we don't get those opportunities as much or they're a lot more hidden than they are on the east side of the tracks. Mm. And what were you like as a child and teenager? Pure perfection. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I was a smart kid and I'm very bored with school and I quit grade 12 three months before graduation. I mean, these stories have all been yeah. told before, but I, I went to my counselor and I said, everyone's getting drunk every night. We're learning nothing. I have a job to go to. Would you give me my grade 12? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, without a trade, you'll be nothing. And he's right. What are the chances that I would be able to build a career and have as many people stand by me and allow me to go through research and development yeah. with their money and with their with their time? But I was a safer bet. And in 2006, so that's 1972, in 2000, 2005, I... I, I gone blank for the name, but the principal at Van Tech School, and I, I used to help them with with things, uh, offered me an honorary grade 12. And I mm-hmm. said, I can't. I said, my friends are getting honorary doctorates. I can't get an honorary <laughs> grade 12. And then the next year, they came to me and they gave me grade 12 and gave me my 1972 marks plus top honors for career planning and business development. Mm. So I have my grade 12. Mm-hmm. And by coincidence, the same year, I got an honorary doctorate at Emily Carr University. So I, I always you joke, you Canada, weird grade 12, honorary doctorate, same year. <laughs> <laughs> and at 19, I remember the story is that you applied for both your real estate license, your bartender license, and you you always joke that your real estate license came it, first. It, it came first. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want, you know, my, my, my friends all went down to um, – a union hall at Nanaimo and Charles, and I forget the number of the union, and we all got jobs at Versatile Shipyards. Mm. We were all hired, mm-hmm. and they were going to Army and Navy to buy work boots, and we came outside, and they said, we're going, and I said no. And it was the beginning of starting to think for yourself and starting to pick my own path. I think if my parents with no fault, had been more financially stable or aware, they would have got me into university. Mm-hmm. And I started to pick a path. But I always used that outside the union hall. You know, maybe <laughs> I'd be super arrogant. I'd have taken my brain and been a shipbuilder. <laughs> Who the hell knows? But I just, it was a real pivotal Mm. moment and that's you didn't I didn't lose my friends but you started to see that I was just thinking a little bit I, I wanted to think a little bit different mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and by your early 30s you were selling a home a day yeah these are all you know they're all accolades we just yeah. grab onto them and 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 hold them but you know it's easy to say I was selling a house a day and where we took the career mm-hmm. but there was a market, a shortage of housing, a positive that is not that much different than today. Yeah. Same conversations. You know, when I got my real estate license, I I think it was Greg Douglas, the sportscaster, who's a dear friend of my dad's, and said, it's over. You missed it, Bob. 33-foot lots now are $33,000. Who can afford them? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and we have those same conversations going on today as we enter a new realm of inflation. Yeah, yeah. I guess the reason why I ask about the selling the home a day is, you know, what made you so good at what you did back then and now above anyone else? Do oh, you think? Do you I, feel? I, I I tell young realtors that if 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 May and a partner are looking for a home, I would show you twenty homes. 20 condos, 20 studios, whatever that is today. And I didn't care if you bought one Mm -hmm. because I was getting an education on the market and we would always go to White Spot for pie and coffee, so there was a social aspect to it. But when we saw the right home, I would tell you why you're buying it because this one was wrong or that one was overpriced or that one didn't have storage, whatever it was. So you just built a trust with people. Yeah. In lieu of education, I knew nobody could put in more hours than me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That I was convinced of really early. Yeah. And I guess the little details, too, because I, I know that you were writing handwritten notes back then. Like those little little touches are important. They, they yeah, seemingly I, seem I'm small. I'm very insecure. I don't like rejection. So, <laughs> so I would... I wasn't the best at door knocking, but I was mm. good at sending letters and Christmas cards. Right. Yeah. You know, something that stood out to me um, whenever we'd have, you know, town halls at, at the company or internal meetings was you were talking about your journey, your career journey along the way. And something that you said was that people were always giving you a hoop to jump through that always got you to the next place. And I remember that really stuck out to me, you know, like people who give you a chance, people who believed in you, those people are important along the way. Yeah, and I, 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 I can diminish it, but... The fact that you show up and you offer enthusiasm is probably 90% of it because a lot of people are showing, are showing up on their own time and wanting to do things on their own terms. Yet it wasn't my money when May wants to buy a house. So what are your terms and what do you need and can I address them? Mm. And I, th- without being calculating because we all look back and go of course I understood that I didn't know at the time yeah and you know even in my real estate days when you're selling a house a day with no assistance so that my peers were comfortable with me I always just told them what went wrong the sale I lost the listing I didn't get nobody wants to hear how great things are going Mm. but I used to put sold signs and open house arrows up and deliver addendum agreements to clients between 12 at night and 2 in the morning when I could just go deliver it all and sometimes Mieko would come with me mm. because I didn't understand that you could have assistance and delegate. But also in, the, in this line of thought, I think we're, where we are today as a society and in an economy that if you have a voice, if you have power or visible success, Nobody's going to celebrate that. What they will give some acknowledgement for is what you're doing for mankind, what you're doing for the common good, what you're doing to give back. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the scales are being balanced a bit more right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'd love to dive into your biggest passion, which is collecting art. 
and you have been collecting art since I think you were 17. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you know, I know you're going to say it, the Norman Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, for sure. It, it was 17 years old. Yeah, and uh, this one I didn't I didn't know, um, but it came up through the research I was doing that the love of the art was was um, sparked um, on a trip to San Francisco in 1970, 70, early 1970s, which is something that I didn't know. So I'd love to know more about that. Yes, uh, I was in Sacramento, and we drove to San Francisco. So it would have been, I get, we get all the years mixed up, it would have been 74. Mm -hmm. And in the Bersani Gallery, I saw a boy and girl sitting on top of the world and Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell is a very cliche Saturday morning post. Images that are implanted in our brain that we don't even know they are. Um, and uh, I really liked it. We went back to Sacramento and then I drove back by myself in a friend's car and Bersani Gallery was closed. I didn't have the <laughs> brain to think on a Sunday. Why don't I phone and see if they're open? Um, and I'm sure that gallery doesn't exist anymore. But um, it was $375. I bought it, and then it was delivered, whether it was FedEx or whatever was used then, and there was $64 owing. My parents mm. didn't have a bank account. Mm. We borrowed the $64 from a neighbor. Nobody had the money in our house. Mm. And it was paid back, but... It was a real pivotal time. And then that Norman Rockwell sat above my dad's Lazy Boy rocker. And then when Mieko and I were married, it hung in our home. And it hangs in a bathroom in our home to this day. Mm. It will always, always stay with us. Was it this utopian boy and girl on top of the world that I saw where that's, that's where life could be? I don't know, was it the signature of Norman Rockwell? But it really started to get me interested in, wow, you could own art. Mm -hmm. And you could own conversations. Right. They, not own, but create conversations from the art. Yeah. And I know that it's important to you to collect in the theme of um, social justice and social commentary, looking at the artists that you, you do collect. And why is this so important to you? to collect in this vein? Oh, that's a lot of therapy. <laughs> uh, you know, the, half the collection deals with social justice. And, you know, if you, if you look at why, why is Andy Warhol so popular? Well, Andy Warhol just reported on the news. He, you know, he took, he took a commodity like Campbell's Soup and did it as a screen print. He took a car crash. He took somebody jumping off a building. He took Elizabeth Taylor... Marilyn Monroe, Jackie Kennedy, did silk screens of them. He was giving us what was current. And so I always feel that my job with the collection is how is it read 25 years from now? Mm. And then in the, you know, I was collecting with my ear until probably the late 80s when I was buying the group of seven and Ken Danby, a, a, mm. a, a realist. And May I ask what it means to be collecting by ear? It's just listening, listening. to what others were saying. Yeah. I had a rich uncle who said, you should buy the group of seven. Because mm. that's what every boardroom in Canada has. Not to, It's just not where my heart and my eye was. Mm. And then as we came into the 90s, I started to get passionate about collecting art on social justice, social injustice, 
race prejudice, not being seen, not being heard. Mm -hmm. And it might come from being a, uh, on the, the growing up with very little. There was never $20 to waste in our home. Mm. And also, maybe as you're trying to be accepted in a business world from the wrong side of the tracks without an education and a homosexual as I came out. And, you know, my father died in 92. The collection started to change in 92. And I I started to deal with my sexuality in 93. Mm -hmm. So those things I might have found that maybe I can because I have adversity that I can start to explore others adversity I cannot compare my adversity to to the challenges in the collection that that we bring in but I met an, an artist who I just hung up from Wendy saying yeah. I'm going to be in Chicago next week I'd like let's get breakfast with Carrie James Marshall and Carrie James Marshall said to me Dates are all a blur, but somewhere in the 90s, Bob, if you go in a museum and you don't see a black figure in a painting, you think it doesn't belong. We're mm. going to change that. Mm. And I bought a painting called The Invisible Man from 1986 that is probably foundational, one of the most important paintings in the collection, but it's about not being seen. Mm-hmm. And all as you really see in those six colors of black in the painting are the eyes and teeth of this figure. And then there's a a rectangle over the genitals and over the brain. Mm -hmm. And you can make all the the generalizations you want that are out there. But I just thought this is foundational. And an art dealer in L.A. phoned me and said, people are laughing at you. Mm. We paid $54,000 for it in the 90s and he says not worth 20 I go I don't care I think it is I think this is what we should be talking about mm-hmm. and so as you as you build some defense mechanisms and confidence and we just went down a path mm-hmm. yeah you know it was so interesting when Carrie James Marshall was here I remember he um did he was part of the Rennie Speaker series and I forgot where it was held at, but I did go to it. It was at the Robson Center. Yes. Oh, yes. that's right. That's right. And I remember him talking about the different shades of black that he paints in. And I, I just remember thinking I've never even thought about shades of that color. Yeah, he's done. A, there's a painting, The Bedroom, which is in Mitch and Emily Rail's collection in Washington, D.C., that I th- it, it's 40 colors of black. Mm-hmm. There's red and black. There's green and black. There's black and black on black, there's purple and black, and you, your eyes slowly adjust and you see all the outlines of the figures, of the bed, of the tables, of the lamps, but you have to adjust to it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but you know when um, Childish Gambino's music video came out for This Is America? Yes. And that very last shot where he's running away from whoever is chasing him, the, the way that the the videographer had shot his face reminded me of Invisible Man because it was just his eyes, I remember. Yeah, and that's, that's all you see. That yeah, that's with, all you see. That, that blackness. So we, we were very cognizant or made sure that we never want to marginalize anything we're doing. Um, and the trouble is we talk about things in silos, but if you ask me, I do not buy female artists but we have 132 women in the collection. Mm. 
I didn't build a collection on female artists. I just built a collection on artists. So that, to me, is inclusivity. But whenever we talk about Carrie James Marshall, we like to talk about Mona Hatoum, who was the first show in 2009 that we opened in our space in Chinatown. Mona Hatoum is a Palestinian artist that really deals with how fragile life is. And it was very important that we open with Mona because we span her career, but it was very important that I never marginalize the collection to be seen as only Canadian. Because then when we showed Canadian artists, they go, oh no, it's a Canadian collection. And our job is to elevate and mm -hmm. raise artists' voices so that we don't just see Canadian artists as Canadian. We don't just see Carrie James Marshall as dealing with um, issues facing black America. The same, whether it's Doris Salcedo, who's a Colombian artist, or Mona Hatoum, a Palestinian artist. Um, you know, with Mona Hatoum, uh, friends were in New York and they went to the Museum of Modern Art and I don't know why they said it to me. They said, you know, looking through, we just saw the creepiest piece. It was a crib made out of glass. Mm. And I said, well, I have the other version. Mm. And it's how fragile life is when we put a baby in that crib. Anything can break it. Right. Anything. What we do to children through their life all the forces coming at us. It's a miracle we all make it through. But that's, those are the issues Mona deals with. Mm -hmm. So whether it's uh, Palestine, whether it's Colombia, whether it's Brian Young as a First Nations artist or Carrie James Marshall or the show we have up now, Barclay Hendricks and Lorna Simpson, everybody is trying to get a narrative through in positive ways, mm. not just in I'm the victim, mm. but elevate the conversation mm -hmm. I, I, we're wandering get me no, back no, on track no, get me is, back on track <laughs> no this is fine no this is great I, I love the wanderings in in these conversations but I did want to um you know say um you were talking a lot about the relationships you you built as a realtor with your clients the the same thing happens with with you and the artists you collect like with with Carrie James Marshall you knew him for 15 plus years didn't you yeah Carrie, Carrie James you know these things are hard to say without arrogance coming into it. But uh, when Carrie James' retrospective opened at the Metropolitan Museum, we loaned works to it. We were there. But then it moved to the uh, uh, L.A. MOCA. And I went to the opening. And at the dinner, uh, Carrie James Marshall stood up to talk. And he talked for five minutes on his journey with Bob. Mm. that and I didn't even I until that moment I did not know that Carrie James didn't have 10 people doing what I was doing some guy in Denver some guy in Europe some guy that it was museums and ourselves but he said Bob would come to my studio and we would talk about art and we would talk about what he was doing and art history but we never talked about commerce mm. and I think that it's a privilege. I know it's a privileged relationship. Carrie, Carrie James is, is a very rare, grounded individual. And you see he's just doing the, it's just been announced that he's doing the, uh, uh, the stained glass windows 
for, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the church in Washington, D.C. Mm. He, he just has honor after honor bestowed upon him. So I, 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 I value and protect the relationship yeah. very carefully because it's, it's been foundational to where I've gone with the collection. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you nurture this a lot with the artists that you collect are these these long, deep relationships that aren't, like you said, about commerce, but just about the person and what they're doing. Yeah. So our, our job is to support artists and raise their voices to the world, not ours. I have a real estate voice, but uh, it's, it, you know, most artists in the collection are living. You know, Barclay Hendricks, who shows up now, is Barclay passed away in 2017 but for anyone who's been to the show or we're open to we're we're open on Saturdays now after COVID um, free to the public but um, the painting brilliantly endowed the full-scale sergeant type painting of Barclay naked from 1977 any museum will show a naked white woman but nobody wanted to show a naked black male mm. and for Five, six years, every time I saw Barclay at any art event, I would ask him to let the dealer sell the painting to me. And he'd go, Bob, it has to go to a museum. Because museums, when they showed his other works, always offered a bit of censorship to that, or around the corner or behind the pole to that work. And then, I don't know, 2013, 14, Barclay was at a, a, another table at dinner. I went over, I said, Barclay, I said, I'm a fake museum, and I'll hang it in my dining room. And he said, if you'll hang me in your dining room, I'll sell you that painting. Wow. But that was five years of, of, of discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, a, 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 a photograph that there's an absolute love-hate relationship with, but it brings conversation, is Andre Serrano's Piss Christ. Mm. But Andre Serrano's Piss Christ hung in a church in the 90s, and someone smashed it right in the middle of the crucifix. It's a crucifix in urine. Urine in ancient times was actually a, 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 a sanitizer, mm. a disinfectant. I forget the other word, um, like iodine. But Andre Serrano kept that in his possession, and we're trying to capture art history, but also social history. Mm. And I didn't want Piss Christ, the photo. I wanted the one that was smashed in the church, right on the crucifix. And through talking to Jack and only meeting Andre once, um, I bought that painting for him, and I paid him payments for three years. Mm. Yeah. Because we typically don't buy trophies. We like to work, we, we like to support. And right. then once an artist, like where Kerry James is, I can't buy his work anymore. Yeah, right. Our, yeah, and, our journey's done. Mm, and I mean, with, with that one too, Garden Party, one of his paintings from 2004? 2004, yeah. yeah it, it took you, you acquired it over nine years. Well, what happened with Garden Party is every time I would go to Kerry James Marshall's studio, which would be once a year, twice a year, maybe sometimes once in two years, whatever that was, every time I went in, it was hanging on the wall and he was working on it. And there's actually three versions of it till he got to painted over to the third and I would say you have to let me have it and he was painting it for the Museum of Modern Art mm. and it turned into a joke and he would Kerry James would say I'd say you have to sell he says Bob it's for Museum of Modern Art and I would say but my collection's better <sighs> it's it's a joke 
2013, Jack Shaman, Carrie James Marshall's gallerist, phoned and said, do you want garden party? I said, yes. I said, but I can't afford it now. And he said, no, that's not the question. Do you want it? I said, of course. He called me back the next day and he said, Carrie James has taken the value of it today and the value of it when you first started bugging him, <laughs> wasn't the word he used, and taken the middle of it if you want it. Mm. And it, 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 those things mark our friendships and mark our journeys that it's, it's you know, the commerce side is, is there because money is involved. But it's putting together a sentence with an artist that you don't want to drop too many words out of the sentence or it won't make sense when you collect in depth. Right. Yeah. I remember this moment. Um, this was uh, probably five years ago. We went on a, a trip. Rennie went on the corporate team, went on a trip to L.A. And Carrie had set up a beautiful dinner in the courtyard of Hauser and Worth downtown. my Carrie, not Carrie James Bond. Yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Carrie, you're Carrie. And we were sitting at the long tables. Everyone was having such a great time laughing. And then all of a sudden you stopped all of us and you introduced us to this this young artist, Mark Bradford. And, um, you know, I think there were 80 of us around. 64. Around the 64. Oh, you were. Oh, wow. Was, okay. Yeah. Um, and I remember you said that it was memorable for you because he got to see the other side of your world you know, with all of us sitting there and laughing and, you know, and that's not something that they see. But, yeah, I just remember you saying yeah, that. The, the artists, they don't know what Bob does for a living so that yeah. I can do this. Uh, they know lightly, but but that that's Mark Bradford came running over. If, I don't know what you remember, right? And picked me up. Mark's six foot six. Yeah, he was tall. Picked me up and said, I'm Bob's illegitimate baby boy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was just, it was great for the office to see that relationships with artists are real relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a friendship and a bond and a trust if we're going to be the custodian. To their, to, to their works. So that that, that sort of really stood out. Yeah. No. It was it was definitely a, a special moment. For uh, sure. We so when May was working with us. So the goal was every July first, we went away one year to Las Vegas, one year to a city, and take the whole office away. And um, I always prided myself on nobody was really worried which table they sat at. There wasn't. A huge hierarchy or or silos within the, within within the office, but um, you had left us already. We went to Seattle. No, I was still. Oh, there. were you in Seattle? Yep. Okay, yep. So, so Seattle. I don't know if you remember, but uh, John Shirley, who was the first president of Microsoft, I phoned down to John and Kim and said, "Can I ask you a favor?" and and I don't know if it was Kim or John said, "You want to see the house?" I said, "No, my." Uh, my company's not interested in your house and the art. We want to come and see the car collection. And it's it is it's not open to to view very often. And he said yes. And so then maybe there was eighty of us by then. Mm -hmm. We all went to see the car collection. It was incredible. It, you'll never see anything like it in the world. There's seventy million dollar cars and hundred million dollar cars. He let everybody sit in them. Yeah. But when John pulled up and we were walking in, I said, "John, I said we're here sort of 
bonding and business. Can you tell us a little bit about the early days of Microsoft? Mm -hmm. And because he was the first president, sat on their board for 25 years. But when he went, he walked up half a flight of stairs. So he was over top of everybody to talk. And as he leaned over the stairs, this is, a, I don't know whether John's 80 or 82. He looked over at me and said, Bob asked me to talk about early days of Microsoft because it's a business trip. He says, Bob, what do you do? Mm. And I thought that that was so important for everybody to hear because my relationship with John Shirley is a friendship. We don't sit down and talk about what his investments are, what I'm doing for a living. We talk about things friends talk about and his life, our life, and we met over art, so that takes a big part of it. But to me, that's what I want the company to see, that it's not John going, thank you for putting me into that condo. We made $100,000, mm -hmm. which wouldn't cover an hour's worth of his interest, I assume. <laughs> I don't. But but it it was good for the office to see. So, so it was an indirect way of showing, maybe going back to the house a day, going back to artist relations, going back to friends' relationships, that, you know, we live in Vancouver where real estate is a sport. You can walk, you walk in as a journalist, May, and you can get people to talk about it. But real estate, oh my God, everybody wants to talk about the value of what they're looking at or why they can't do it or what they did or what a friend did. It's, it's, it's not just unique to here, but it is, it is a unique conversation here. Mm. I do remember that, that, um, that visit with John Shirley. And you know, actually the thing that stood out the most to me is that we were already in there and then he pulled up and he had his dog Alfa Romeo with him. And it just was, it was so just normal. And we were just petting John Shirley's dog. He was chatting with us. He was so lovely. Yeah, pulled up in his old yellow Ferrari. Yeah, and with his dog and his dog was very important to him, you could tell. And it was, it was very, yeah, it was very, um, yeah, it was just very cool to have well, that moment. Kim uh, is a second, John's second marriage, and we've, we've known Kim forever. And Kim said that Bill was over the other night and said, you better like art. <laughs> Bill is Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. But I've never heard a human refer to Bill Gates this this larger than life image as Bill. So what a, I, I mean, it was very fortunate for me to live on the periphery of, of these amazing lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm watching the time. I know you're a busy man, so just a couple more questions. Um, the, the art world now, um, what would you say is, uh, from when you started collecting to now, what do you find most different about it? Um, you know, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. In about 2010, no, it's 2011-12, I bought a Toyota Prius. And my daughter phoned me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I have to be environmentally more conscious. And she, she said, but it's a fraud. She said, you're bringing a new car onto the planet, which is the worst thing because you didn't need it. 
And as we were putting a passionate collection together through the 90s and 2000s, for the last 30 years, um, there's a lot of people grabbing onto social jewelry mm. to, the, to buy art, to hang on the wall, to look like you care and look like you're involved in the discussion. So that would have been my comment about three years ago is, I don't think it's right. But now my comment is, I don't care how you get in. Mm. You're supporting artists. You're buying it for early adapter to your conversation and your social consciousness. But you might get in for the wrong reasons because you think it's an asset and you're going to sell it and you're going to make money. And how cool are you that you have whatever topic on social discussion in your home, whether it's indigenous, whether it's African-American, whether it's trans, whatever that is, you may get in for the wrong reasons, but you might stay for the right reasons. Mm. And so I, I'm, I've lost my critical side of that because I think it was too easy an answer a few years ago of the, just as social jewelry. And my daughter was right, but it started to raise my consciousness mm. about climate change and about being more responsible. Mm. We're not there. We're all selective in the parts we talk about and say that we do. We'll get on a plane and fly business, yet complain because the tap's running. Well, let's, let's right. really start to level out our, our conversations. So back to art. You may get in for the wrong reasons, but hopefully you'll stay for the right reasons, and you will raise social consciousness on something. Mm -hmm. As for art collecting, I always tell people, pick a lane and get in it. Whether you only collect photos of trees, whether you only collect black and white paintings, whether you only collect female artists, whether you only collect social injustice, whether you only collect paintings with gold frames on it, get into a lane for a few years and then swerve all over the road. But stay in your lane for a while and get comfortable with the idiosyncrasies and what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so be intentional right from the beginning that's, that's and what I I waited too long I collected with my ear and then I decided to collect with my eye mm -hmm. mm. and seriously I got lucky or you wouldn't have me here mm. like some doors opened and I walked through them yeah a lot of times doors open for us but we're too busy and we don't walk through them yeah mm. those are those hoops that I was talking those about are, those <laughs> are those hoops that that you Take the challenge. Reinvent yourself. It's okay. Yeah. It's it's not it's not flippant. It's not inconsistencies. You get yourself uncomfortable every few years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look what you're I, doing. I, look what you're doing. You, I get. I get you it. You left a very safe place to come here. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah. but you pushed your you you decided to follow your eye and your heart rather than just listen to you know, parental advice is you're getting a steady paycheck. Why mm -hmm. would you rock that? That was exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly it. Yeah. So I, so I, I celebrate people moving on. Mm -hmm. um, so a few more questions. Um, I'm curious to know with the last two years, what's been happening with the pandemic, what have you learned about yourself in the world in that time? You know, I, you may have seen it. I mm. did a talk last March to the office. It was one take and... Uh, 
Chris, my son, who runs the company, and I decided that we would, you know, this was March 2020. We didn't know what we were headed for. Mm. And we said that we want to still be standing when we get through this. So we told the staff we would back them for a year. Yes. Didn't even know what it meant. But there's something that I said in it that I learned something about myself is I, I said, why don't you show people that you're vulnerable? And maybe then they'll admit that they're vulnerable because no one likes to be the first. In a relationship, no one likes to be the first to say, I love you because you're so afraid they're not going to say it back. So they don't. But what I said to everybody is, why don't you start phoning people every day and letting them know you'd like to shake their hand, but you can't. I'd like to hug you, but I can't. Mm. And it's just sort of something that really stayed with me that, you know, you're rambling off what's on your brain. And I go, no, that's what we should be doing. Mm. Because I think that, you know, we get cold with Zoom calls. You know, people don't like to be vulnerable on a Zoom call because you you don't feel the temperature of the room, people rolling their eyes back or giggling with you. Are they against you? Are they with you? And it, it's tough, and we're not all mentally equipped. So I just think let people know your, some of your vulnerabilities so they'll share theirs, and I think it's the best self-help you can give people mm. because this was a tough one. This was, was a really, tough. really tough one. Uh, my first four months, so I know f- only because I looked at it last night with a friend that for 2020 I walked 18,000 steps a day average for the year but for the first three to four months I was walking 40,000 steps a day I was walking 25 kilometers plus a day on the phone I don't know why I couldn't go into the office so my coping mechanism was I just phoned people and I would do zoom calls walking they'd see me when I needed to I put in my pocket when I needed to Um, I lost two pounds Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but that was, I guess, a coping mechanism, yet I just thought I was being healthy mm. and phoning people. But I, I think that we realize how much we need people, but we also, I think all of us realize that we now respect our safe places a lot more. Mm. That's in friendships, that's in our business life, that's in our, 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 our love lives. And, you know, as humans, we weren't meant to be together 24-7 in this 500-square-foot apartment I talked you into living in. (laughs) And so, you know, I can go into a whole suite design and public areas, but but things are never going to be back the way they were. Mm. 18 of us are not getting in an elevator ever again. It's not going to happen. Right. So we're all making some social adjustments. But I just think the the thing I really learned is I, I... respect the safe places I have and not too keen on the unsafe places. And, and mm. that doesn't come because I'm 65 and life is, has been okay now. It's just it's where we want our brain is in safe places. Mm. Yeah, I really love I that. Mean, I mean, I'll do this with you. Yeah. I would do this with Kirk LaPointe, but I'm not going to do this with a lot of people because mm. there's not going to be a gotcha moment. I don't think no. I have a gotcha moment that I'm not afraid <laughs> to talk about. But you just go, oh, I don't, We did we rehearse a thing? No. You sent me questions. <laughs> yeah, think, you didn't. I, I didn't read them because yeah. talking about your life is talking about your kids. You shouldn't need notes. Mm. Well, speaking about your kids, actually, this is one of my questions. Um, 
you know, what would you say to you, your son, Chris, who's a dear friend of mine, um, daughters, Steph and Kate, um, right now, if they were here in person, like straight from the heart, what would you, what would you um, tell them? I, you know, I sort of say all the time indirectly, if I die tomorrow, nobody should feel, you know, is it too early? Yes, but should feel sad because I live a, a really, you know, we sugarcoat shit, but a really nice life, a really happy life because I did what I wanted to do. But I've always just thought as a parent that we're supposed to be good observers and then pick up the pieces when mm. when you when you need to. I think I boast too much, but I think my kids know me and I know them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get much, much better than that. Mm. My final question, the question that I ask all of my guests, um, with what it is you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Okay, I'm very deliberate about legacy. You know, the museum in Chinatown, um, we really wanted to give back to the city. We wanted to participate. I have a thing that when you crawl into your casket, you want to legitimately say you didn't hurt anybody. And I think this, you know, the city's been good to us, so it's participating. It's, you know, I'm, I'm having a dinner on the 25th for the Governor General of Canada. So he said, who would you like to invite? I said, all six university presidents, because they're the ones that are handling our future with youth of tomorrow. So I think that hopefully my, my legacy is my Rolodex and, and being able to connect people and do that, those soft things behind the scene of getting the university presidents in front of the governor general in a, in a quiet, calm setting that isn't everybody has briefed everything each other is saying and, and it's all not manufactured, but it, it has so many governors on it for a 15-minute meeting. So can we help do those things? I, I, I hope that that's... Mm. That's what I'm able to do. Mm. Well, thank you for being here, Bob. Oh, thanks I, for I, having me. I, I can't believe people want to listen to this. <laughs> no, I mean, I I thank you not only for being here and for this conversation, but, you know, thank you for always um, supporting me and all of my ventures and, you know, always saying, May, just remember to follow your passions. Don't give up on them. They make you who they, that they make them, they make you who you are. Um, so I'll never forget that. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you. No, but you're carrying voices of people you talk to the way we try and carry artist voices and elevate them. So, no, thank you. I won't read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> and I will hug you at the end of this. Okay. <laughs> thank okay. you, Bob. No, th- thanks for having me. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.